Awesome. It's good to see you guys. Good to be with you. So uh, we just had baby Theo about two weeks ago. Been excited about that. Um, one of the things that we have been doing a lot is doctor's visits, right? So the first couple weeks, you know, uh, you I think the first three weeks you're in the doctor's like three times. And so, you know, in prepping uh, for this and thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it made me think of a doctor. You know, that when you go to see a doctor, right, they're checking on your health. They're checking to see if you're okay. And how do they do that, right? They, they start asking asking you questions, right? They kind of examine your health, and it's important, right? I mean, it's important that you get checked out, that you kind of say that, because if you don't, you're going to start having the effects of being unhealthy, right? I mean, you can just say, I'm fine, I'm fine, plug your your fingers in your ears and not go, but guess what? You're still going to have the effects of not being healthy, and so it's better that you learn about it and seek to maybe make changes uh, to, to, to become healthy, and I think about that in regards to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is talking to us, he's asking and saying, you know that there's something far more important than your physical health? That your physical health is, is going to wane, it's going to wax, sometimes you have no control over it, but there's something that's far more important, it's your spiritual health. And, and so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of systematically taking us through and he's showing us, he's saying, are, are you healthy spiritually? Are you, are you walking after me? He starts asking these questions, what do you think is the life that's worthy of having, of, of worthy of imitating? He starts talking about the blessed life. And what is the life that we're striving for? What is the life that we're actively pursuing? And he asks the question, do you know who I am? You know, do, you, do, you, do you know who I am, that I'm the Lord of all creation, that I'm the one that the law points to, the whole Testament is written, and I am the fulfillment of that? Do you know who Christ is, really? Not just an idea, but do you worship him for who he is? And he talks about if, if, that's, if that's really who you say you worship, then how is forgiveness in your life? How is anger in your life? How is lust in your life? And he starts going through and asking these, these questions. And where we're at right now is that we are in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 19 through 24 this morning. But we just kind of came out of a section in, uh, in Matthew 6, 1 through verse 18, where Jesus talks about these three things. He talks about giving, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. And all of them, and he asks this, and this is kind of the theme verse for those things. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he talks about that we can live a life um, that is perceived as righteous, all as a reward before men. And so we talked about fasting last week. And I, and, and I challenged, the application was for those that were here, was that we would fast. And so I hope that, that it's not like guilt, but I hope that you, you experience that, that you chose to fast. And if not, I hope that you will join us and that you will find a rhythm of fasting. Because one of the things that we learned last week is that fasting declares that we need Christ. And that it creates a hunger and a longing for the things of God more than the things of this world. And that it also is one of the ways that God reveals our idols. Right, that you know, with Theo, like you learn that he is banking on that pacifier to soothe him as soon as you take it out of his mouth, right? Because then he starts screaming. And so too, sometimes when we take away food, we realize the things that we've really been using to soothe us, the things that we've really been using to satisfy, haven't been Christ. And so God wants to bring that to the surface and to cleanse the dross off, that He would purify us, that we would be sharp for His kingdom. And so I hope that, that as we are, we're going to continue on, just that. You see major movements in God's kingdom, and, and even within our culture have been happening when people join in God's purposes of fasting and praying. And so I would just, I hope that you don't neglect that, you know, um, that you please, you know, find a time um, to, to make a, a priority of fasting and seeking God's face. Um, so, but with that, um, I want to move on to our next passage, and, uh, and he's going to ask us about 
How's our relationship with our possessions, with the treasures of this world? What does our relationship look like with these things? And so go ahead, and uh, we're going to read, starting in verse 19 and going through verse 24. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. So the big idea that is going to guide our time um, is this, is that the pursuit of wealth deceives and enslaves those who chase it. The pursuit of wealth deceives and enslaves those who chase it. We must be wise and pursue God for true wealth. We must be wise and pursue God for true wealth. And so the outline that we're going to follow is we're going 3D, all right? So we're going to talk about the desire for money, the deception of money, and uh, the deliverance from the love of money. Deliverance from the love of money, all right? So remember 3D for, for, uh, for the message. Uh, so first, we're going to talk about the desire of money. And it's interesting because look in verse 19 with me. Jesus starts out with a negative prohibition, right? He says, do not. So he's commanding us not to do something, right? And, and not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth, right? And the key word there is for ourselves, right? Jesus is talking and, and he's saying, don't be hoarders. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish for yourself. And so why, you know, the question that came to my mind is why is it that we try to store up for ourselves treasures and here on earth? What, what is the motive for storing treasures for ourselves, right? And I think there's two stories that Jesus, uh, that, that were found in the Gospels that clarify. One's in Luke 12, and Jesus is talking, and there's a, a, a man that comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? Apparently him and his brother, you know, perhaps their father had passed, and they're quabbling now about the estate, you know, he's saying, listen, my brother's not giving me the estate. He's not giving me my portion. And so you, Jesus, are going to be the judge. You're going to come and you're going to tell my brother what he ought to hear. And he'll listen to you. And Jesus turns to, you know, who made me an arbitrator between you? Why, why do you call me a judge? Why do you come and ask me to differentiate? And then he tells this parable. He says, there was a rich man, a farmer that, that had an, a massive increase in his crop. And so he thought to himself, what shall I do with this great increase that I've had? For my barns right now, they're too small. And so he said, you know what I'll do? I'll tear down my barns right now, and I'll build even bigger barns. And then, then I can tell my soul, rest, eat, drink, be merry, for you have much stored aside. You are safe, you're secure. And Jesus turns to that man, and he says, God turns, and he says, you fool, did you not know that this very night your soul was required of you? And he says, so is the one that is not rich towards God. 
All right, he says, take care. And this is kind of the theme of this passage. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And we hear that story and we think, well, that's strange. Didn't he just save up for retirement? Like what, you know? Like, it, it, and, and we think it odd. Why is it that Jesus gives us an example of greed, an example of covetousness, of storing up for himself treasures on earth, and that his soul will be required of him? Why? Because he was not rich towards God. It's because he was using finances to be his security. They were the thing that gave him control of his life. And the question is, do, do they, our finances will give us control over our lives? Do we feel that they are the security that holds our life together? The next uh, story that we have is Jesus in uh, Mark 10. There's a, a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you know the commandments. You should not steal, commit adultery, and honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, all of these I have done since my youth. Apparently he's impeccable at obedience. And it, it's very curious because it says in the text that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right? He looked at him and he loved him. And he said to him, one thing that you would be required to do, Take your possessions and sell them and give the proceeds to the poor. And you, you come and follow me. And the rich young really says the text that, that he turned away and he was saddened because he had much wealth. And why Jesus gives us an example of, of what does it mean for us to, to hoard treasure for ourselves on earth? And it was because ultimately he found his value in what was here and now and not in who Christ was. So, and he goes on to say in verse 25, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is, I think, a sobering topic for us because most often we don't realize that we are greedy, right? We don't understand, we don't see it in ourselves. And so Jesus says, listen, we ought to be careful to store up, that we don't store up for ourselves treasures on earth. And, and the problem isn't primarily money, right? I think that I want to make a distinguish between, uh, it's called source idols, uh, surface idols and source idols, okay? So sometimes people think, well, those people have money problems because they're constantly spending things on other people, right? Or they're spending things on themselves. They, they just, they have a money problem, right? And so there are maybe clear ways that we kind of identify all they, they have a money problems because they're constantly spending. But we need to realize that our money issues or our possessions or our treasures on earth issues really are dictated by our source issues, by the idols that control us. You see, for someone that uh, there's four main kind of deep idols or source idols, control, comfort, acceptance, um, approval, all of these things, um, or sorry, control, power, comfort, and acceptance. And all of these things are idols, and they will dictate how we use money. But you see, some ways make us think that we don't have a money problem, right? Because listen, if you use money as a sense of control, then you might not spend a lot, but you're going to be a penny pincher, right? You're going to be a hoarder. And so you're going to constantly be thinking about how can I save more? How can I save more? How can I save more? Right? Why? Is because 
you have used money to be control. You think that because I have a certain amount in my bank account, now my life is in control. Now I am safe. Now I'm secure. And so what happens in life if your bank account goes down? If your, if your uh, retirement account fluctuates? Is your security attached to the value in your bank account? What about those with power, right? Money is used, if, if the, the source I behind it is power, then you use money to gain influence, right? And this can even look like being generous, but the reason, the purpose behind generosity is that you would gain influence, sway to, to bend other people according to, your, according to your will. What about comfort, right? This is, I think, one of the most frequently in America is that we use money to be comfortable, Right, and so whatever. If I feel hungry, or if I feel if I feel like I want a certain thing, then I'm going to go out and get it when I want it, how I want it, because I use money as a way to make me feel comfortable. Jesus isn't really the comfort of my soul. He doesn't really satisfy me. What will satisfy me is these possessions, these things. They make me feel comfortable. Right comfort shopping, right? You go on and you, you start just picking things off because there's, there's, right, there isn't there a, a quick high that comes from that, but it constantly, it constantly uh, brings discontentment. Have you ever had the Christmas effect, right? You get excited about Christmas, things are here. I remember being a kid and like, you're like, oh man, Christmas is here and you get all the things and then like the next day you're just discontent. You're just not satisfied because right? it, it just doesn't last. And so too, when we use things to comfort us, it, it will never be enough, right? There, we're never going to have enough things to finally comfort us. It's going to always be what's next. What else do I have to have to comfort me? And then the last thing is, is acceptance, is that we use money in order to be accepted by other people. And oftentimes this, this one especially looks like, uh, can look like generosity on the surface, right? And that we give or enable others around us because we can't stand to have someone think poorly of us. We can't stand to stand up and perhaps not give because we actually love that person. And so how is it, do we use money in order that other people would accept us, that they would like us, that they would approve of us? And so I hope you see that, that our source idols are what really affect how we use money, right? That, that depending upon what you're using money for, it's going to look very different. Right, that if you're using it for comfort, listen, you might be a saver and you might be looking at that spendthrift over there and saying, Hey, they got issues, you know? And they're like, Listen, you're a tightwad, you just need to be able to spend. And both of you have money issues, you know? And usually in relationships and in marriages, usually you have different people on different spend uh, different, you know, ends of the spectrum, right? And they, they tend to look at each other and get critical. And listen, God's probably brought you into that to balance each other out. You know, like you probably need to not not spend as much, you probably need to be able to save a little bit more, you know, so you come together and find a healthy balance. So, but, but the question is, what is it that you're treasuring? What is it that you, that you value, right? And, and Jesus says in this, he says at the end, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, immediately what it made me think of is it made me think of a compass, right? Whenever you have a compass, right, the needle automatically goes to, to magnetic north, right? That it goes there. It's just drawn there automatically. No matter where you're at, it's going to turn there. And the same thing is that whatever we have made a treasure in our heart, our lives are going to automatically turn to that, no matter where we're at, right? We talked about in Bible study, that all of a sudden when you start saying, oh, I want this, you know, like, uh, 
You're, you know, like I, I would love to have a truck. And so now I like start looking. I'm like, oh, man, there's a truck. Oh, there's a truck. Oh, and you start seeing it everywhere. You're like, man, it's everywhere. Why? Because you're starting to focus on it. You know, and, and so you're starting to see it. And that's the same thing as whenever you treasure something in your heart, all of a sudden you begin to look for it in every avenue of life. No matter where you're situated, your heart and your life are always going to be oriented towards that. Don't you see why principles aren't going to solve it? Principles and, uh, and knowing what to do doesn't change the heart. You, we need something deeper. Because if we just put principles in, we can do the principles, but our heart is still going to go to that place where it's set its treasure on. So if we know what drives it, right? Then, then if we know why, why is it that we seek treasures on earth, right? Because of idolatry in our life, because we are finding these other things and we think that they're going to bring satisfaction, whether it's power, acceptance, you know, control or comfort, we think that money will be able to do it for us. And it's, it's false, right? It's, it's a lie. And, and Jesus talks about it and he says, listen, this is why you should not, this is why you shouldn't invest and put your wealth and treasures that's on earth, right? And he, he approaches it very practically, right? So if you think about finance or investment 101, kind of the basis of like finance is that, listen, you want to mitigate your risk and you want to maximize your returns, right? I mean, like you talk to any financial advisor, they're going to tell you, listen, all right, so like we want to get you in, you know, and stuff that's not going to be as volatile or as risky and we want to maximize your returns. And usually those are opposite of each other, right? If you want high returns, you usually get high volatility. If you want safety, you get low returns, right? And so, but Jesus says, listen, no matter where you're at, you're going to have risk, right? I mean, and that's true for investing. And anywhere you're at, you're going to have risk. Listen, if you say, listen, I'm not going to invest, you're going to face risk. Inflation is going to catch up to you. And guess what? Your $100 in you know five years is not going to be what it was. But if you decide I'm going to invest, guess what? You're going to face risk too, right? And you're going to face the risk that maybe a business isn't going to operate as it should. And all of a sudden, that money that you invested is gone. And Jesus says, listen, and he says this, why are you investing where moth and rust destroy? Why are you investing in the temporary things? Because guess what? No matter where you invest, it's going to be gone, right? I mean, like ultimately, it, I mean, something's going to be able to chew away at it. It's going to, it's going to disappear. Or he says where thieves will break in and steal. And so there, and, and man, I think we've seen that plenty in the last 10 to 15 years, right? I mean, places that we thought were safe to invest your money and all of a sudden to discover CEOs or other people that have taken advantage that have taken these investments and used them for personal gain and have squandered them, and, and, and investors that thought that they were safe weren't. And Jesus says, why are you investing in these places? Don't you see that there's a far better investment? Don't you see that investing your life in a place that is, is one, doesn't offer risk? I mean, the kingdom of God is as safe and secure as it comes. Right? Forget the American government. Right? I mean, the kingdom of God is, is never going to default. But he also says that it's going to offer more return than you can imagine. Man, it isn't, for me, that's satisfying to my heart. Because one of the things that I see in my own heart that I war against is that we want to have our best life now. Right? I mean, there's so much beauty, there's so many things out in the world that you want to enjoy now. And the way that we war against that is remembering that God has promised our best life is never now, but it's to come. Our best life is when the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus returns, and when we are clothed in our resurrected bodies, when this world is brought back to its original beauty and splendor, and we miss nothing now. We miss nothing now by sacrificing, by giving, by, by living for the kingdom of God, by investing in the future and, and what God is doing. And so Jesus approaches and says, listen, give your, put your treasure in heaven 
where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal, it, it, will, not, it will not disappoint you. And so the question is, are we going to live for the future, for what is true, for what is real, or are we going to live for now, what is temporary, what is fading, what will disappoint us ultimately? So, Stott, uh, John Stott, one of the commentators, uh, one of the commentators, he says this. He says, if we would only think seriously about our possessions, we would realize that they belong to a passing world which offers no security. In fact, seeking security in this world and its possessions is a recipe for producing anxieties rather than relieving them. The more we gather possessions in order to feel secure, the more we feel we need them in order to be secure. And then the more we need to guard them to maintain our security. Therefore, the less secure we are. (laughs) Don't you see that, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, but that when we seek to accumulate possessions, it brings anxiety because it's a, it's a never-ending circle where we're constantly trying to chase it, and it will never satisfy. So if we aren't to, to earn and to seek to put treasures in, in, on earth, then why do we work, right? I think that there are some things that Jesus is telling us that we should work, where the earning income is good, is, is honoring to the Lord, right? And, and I think there's two things. One, uh, he talks about that we need to provide for the needs of our family. Right? And, and in 1 Timothy 5 eight, he says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Listen, God has called us to work, and God has called us to work diligently and faithfully, and he's called us to earn income. Why? So that we might provide for those that God has given to us. And ultimately, we know that God is the one that's given us the energy. God's given us the ability. God's given us the increase. All of these things are from the Lord. But God calls us to exert effort intentionally that we would work diligently in order that he might give us that we might provide. Right? I mean, this is what he talks about in First Timothy. He also talks about that he would give us that we would work diligently um, in order that we might be generous. And so in Ephesians 4.28, he says, and hear, hear the gospel in this. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? There are times God might call you to store, but not, maybe not for yourself. Maybe God's calling you to store and he's calling you to use that for the benefit of another. And so... And listen, there are times where God has given us good gifts to enjoy, right? I mean, times where God has given us amazing things and he calls us to enjoy those things. But we also have to be careful that that enjoyment doesn't turn into license, right? It doesn't turn into greed or entitlement or covetousness. And so he says, listen, and and this is amazing. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but hear the gospel, how it transforms his heart. Now he no longer wants to take from other people, but he loves the Lord and wants to work in order that he might give to other people. And so part of what God has given you isn't for yourself. Part of what God has given you is earmarked for the benefit of other people. And we believe that as a church. I mean, ten, at least 10% of what we take in as a body is turned out and is given to, to missions and to ministries. And so we, we, we believe that wholeheartedly that God has given us, not just simply for our own you know, sustenance, our own stability, but he's given us in order that we might, we might give. We're blessed to be a blessing. So we've talked about the desire for money and how uh, the desire for money can, can ultimately lead us astray if it's not found in Christ. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is the deception of money. The deception of money. Now, look in verses 22 through 23, because this is kind of a little confusing. When I read this, it, at first you're kind of like, what exactly does this mean? He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness, right? The illustration that Jesus is giving here 
is that he imagines your body as this, as this void. And he says your eye is like a window. Imagine a dark room, and there's only one window in that dark room, and it is the window that brings in light. And Jesus here says it's like a lamp in a dark room, right? And he says that it is bringing light. And what he's talking about is your eyes. Yes, it's, it's your physical vision, right? I mean, but it's also what you are gazing upon, what you're focused on, what is your vision in life, right? And he says that this is going to bring light or darkness into you. And, and that it is going to direct you. Right? I mean, it's kind of what we talk about. When What you choose to focus on, it directs your whole uh, lifestyle, what you do. And so he says if... If you are looking, at, and it says if the eye is good, and what does he mean here by good? In the King James, in the old King James Version, it has a, a, a single purpose, right? And so I think that really this is getting at one of the Beatitudes where it says the pure in heart shall see God. And what it means to be pure in heart is it means to have a single focus. It means to will one thing. And so the eye that is good is the eye that is wholly set upon the Lord, that seeks his kingdom first and foremost above everything else, right? And that includes, it means being generous, being kind, loving, right? And so that is the eye that is good, the eye that is set upon his kingdom, that when it, the eye that is set upon his kingdom, it will take in and it will be directed in everywhere it goes by him. But the eye that is bad, right? And what does it mean? What's the opposite of being pure in heart? It means double. it's to be double-minded. It's the eye that is fractured, right? That's splintered, that's divided. And this eye, it's constantly looking and it's not satisfied. It's got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and it's going back and forth, never, to de- never decided about where it's going to be. And he says that this is, this is a fractured life. And, that, and this is where it gets at. He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What does he mean by that? And I think one of the things that he means is he means that those that think that they're in the light but are in the darkness, how great is that darkness? And so he's talking about that money is one of the rare things that has the power to deceive us. Who here is, has seen the Lord of the Rings? Anybody? Have, raise your hand. Have you seen the Lord of the Rings? All right, so most people have seen the Lord of the Rings. You know, Jared Tolkien wrote it, uh, was a Christian in one of the, the things, uh, and I think one of the clearest illustrations, is that uh, the whole story is about uh, these seven rings that were made. Sauron is this uh, this you know evil uh, magician wizard, you know that uh, that he uh, he created these rings, of, and one there's the ring to rule them all, the ring of power, right? And that it was given, and that the wearer of it was was captivated, enslaved the wearer. I mean, when you see Frodo and he, he finds and he takes the ring from Gollum and he does it, is it he doesn't realize that it begins to change him, right? Is that when he wears the ring or when he has the ring around him, it begins to change his character. Is that he becomes more uh, irritable, angered quicker, and he becomes very defensive. And all of a sudden his language starts to change and he calls it the precious, right? And it becomes his wealth. And all along, he is deceived. He doesn't see it in himself, right? Until people bring it up and they say, and, and then he realizes that it dawns on him that this has captivated his heart. It's grabbed him. And so often, I think that that's exactly what wealth does for us or what greed or soaring of treasures on earth is that we are often the last people to see it in ourselves. 
And Jesus says this, right, when he's talking about the parable of the soils, is he, he goes along and says that there's a, there's a man that's sowing seed, and he's throwing it and scattering it along, and some falls, and it falls on uh, uh, the road, and the birds come down and, he talk, you know, and, and take it up. He says, this is the enemy that's taking the word up. And he says, there's others that are scattering it, falls along very shallow soil, but the sun and, and dries it up, you know, and, uh, and it didn't have any root in itself. And he says, but there's some that, that fell, and it grew up, but there were the weeds and the thorns that choked it out. And Jesus says that it's the deceitfulness of wealth and that it choked the word, it choked the seed out from becoming fruitful, from bearing the fruit that it was intended to. And he says that there is good seed that falls upon good soil and it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And man, there's such a close similarity between those two, right? Both of them are growing, but yet one is choked out. One is hindered from bearing the fruit that God would call it to bear. Why? It's because the deceitfulness of riches hinder it. Because it's double-minded. It's not fully in the kingdom, not fully in the world. Tim Keller, as I, uh, I was prepping for this, I was reading one of his books, Counterfeit Gods, and he talks about that when he pre- preached a series over the seven deadly sins, and, uh, and he said it was, you know, it was packed out for, for pride, you know, it was packed out for adultery, and it was packed out for, you know, for stealing for these things, and, uh, and, and his wife turned to him and said, you know, I bet you that it's going to be very slim when it comes to greed. I bet, I bet you just, there's not going to be a lot of people for it. And he said, sure enough, you know, when I went to preach on greed, he said, I found that it was a very slim crowd. And it was curious because he said, I don't think it was because people thought, oh, no, I don't want to hear about that. He said, I think it was because people thought I don't struggle with that. You see, they thought it was obvious. Of course, I mean, it's, it's obvious if you steal, right? I mean, or if you lie or if you commit adultery, right? I mean, like, it's pretty clear. That's not my wife, you know? Like, those things are obvious. But but there's not really a clear standard when it comes to greed, right? I mean, it's not like, okay, well, I have a fixed percentage, and then if I cross that line, I know that I'm greedy. And so it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves. Why? Because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, right? I mean, like, when we think about being greedy or being hoarders, we're like, well, listen, like, I know I spent this, or I spend that, or I know that I saved this, but, like, they have far more than I do. And so there's always somebody in our social group that has more money than us, right? And what do you think their justification is, right? I mean, like, even the millionaires, they're like, listen, they hang around billionaires. So they're like, hey, you know, like, I'm not that bad. Look at that guy. And maybe there's a couple people at the top that are like, all right, yeah, I know I'm greedy. You know, but, like, most people are kind of like, they, they, are, they're just, they justify it based upon their socioeconomic class. There's other people around me. And so we, we fail to see the greed and the covetousness within our own hearts, within our own lives. And so I think that as a default, especially, and you know, Colin was sharing that if you make $25,000, you're in the top 4% of the world. If you make over $50,000 as a combined household, you're in the, was it the top 1%? The top 1% in the world. And it's so easy for us to forget that, right? Because of what, where we live and who we live around. And listen, what I'm not saying is that this is not intended to, to bring guilt, but it's intended to bring clarification, Right, because I believe that God has given us some of this wealth, right? Yes, to provide for our families, to make, yes, to have enjoyment, but also to be stewards over. Do you not think that God perhaps has given us some of this because and to, to be an influence in the rest of the world? I believe absolutely. I believe absolutely. And so I think that, that man, wealth has this unique power to deceive us that we don't see it ourselves. And so we need to have other people in our lives that are able to call us out on this, that love us, that know us, that we are able to confess these things to. Because if we don't see it in ourselves, we need other people like 
You know, like Frodo's friends that saw it in him and called that called it out. We need a band of friends. We need a brand of brothers. That's why we have small groups. That's why we continue to promote that we need to do community together because we do. We absolutely need it. We can't be healthy spiritually and live in isolation of other Christians. You, you can't. And so I think that God would ha- free us from this deception and help us to live lives of, of health and generosity by being together. So we've we've looked at... We looked at the desire for money and the deception of money, and I want us to close our time by looking at deliverance from money. Right? Jesus has given us three word pictures. He talks about money as, as treasure, and then he talks about light, and then the next thing he talks about is that it's a master, right? That it, it, at times it can enslave us. And he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So he says that if you have treasures here on earth, if that is what your focus is on, then you will be a slave to them. And what, is it, what does it mean to be a slave to money? Right? Does it mean that you bow down to the dollar? That you have a dollar enshrined in your home? Right? No, what it means to be a slave to the dollar is that you, every decision that you make in your life is always calculated financially. Everything, everywhere you look at, whatever you're thinking about, is that you are looking and asking, how does this affect my, my net worth? How does this affect me financially? Is this gain or, or loss? And listen, it doesn't mean that we ignore those things, that we're totally ignorant or we're foolish, but, but is everything that you do, is it always calculated against that? Are you always thinking and planning and scheming about how you can, can gain more, how you can maximize this? It means you're a slave. How, what about, have you had times where God has called you to give more than what would be comfortable? Or he's called you to give outside of your comfort zone. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity, he says, you know that, that you're giving the right amount when giving hinders you from doing what you would normally do. If you can live a comfortable lifestyle and you don't give up anything right now and, still, and, and are giving, then you're not giving enough. Giving is called to, to, to make us uncomfortable joyous we give joyfully we don't give under compulsion or or uh, under duty we give joyfully unto the lord but but we give in a way that that would that that does make us uncomfortable in, in our lifestyle right in order that others might might live and others in order that others might have we sacrifice because that's what christ did for us so he 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 contrasts these being a slave to money and being a slave to jesus and he says you can't do both you can't do both. You're either one or you're the other. And so what does it mean to be a slave to Jesus? What does it mean to be a slave to the kingdom? He says it means that the same thing is that every decision you make is constantly in reference to the kingdom of God. Is how does this magnify the worth of Jesus? How does this show the value of the one who saved me? How does this benefit and advance the kingdom of God? And he says that you can't do both. You can't be thinking and calculating constantly about your kingdom, about your worth, and about how your money, and be thinking about the kingdom of God and advancing his kingdom and his worth and his value, that they're opposed to one another. And so how is it that we, how do we do this? How do we make God our, our treasure, right? How is it that we, that we are slave to Jesus, and, and I think it's, it's so valuable that we realize that it's not by guilt and it's not by willpower. Because oftentimes in money talks that we leave and we just feel guilty, right? 
we're like, well, man, I feel guilty because I live in America and I make all this money and like, you know, and I, and we walk away and we feel guilty or we muster up and we say, you know what? I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to be more diligent with the money that God's given me. and I'm going to get a plan. I'm going to stick to the plan and I'm going to master the plan. Let's go. Right. And we, and we think that that's going to, to change us. And, and, and listen, I think exerting effort and like have, being intentional, those are good things, but that's all, not ultimately going to change you. What's going to change you and I is realizing the God who was rich, but yet gave up everything for us. The one who was rich yet became poor for our sake, that through him we might become rich. You see, what changes our heart is when we understand the grace of God in Jesus, and we see Jesus as our wealth. Do you believe that if you had everything stripped from you today, that you would still be infinitely wealthy? Because it's when we believe that, it's when we see that, that, that Jesus is the pearl of great price. And what I mean by that is he tells this, he tells this parable, and this man, is, it constantly gets to me. There's a man that goes and he finds in this field, he finds, he finds this, this treasure. And he, he says, this treasure is so valuable that I'll sell everything and buy the whole field in order that I might get that treasure. Why? Because he knew that everything was rubbish in comparison to that treasure. And he says, until Jesus becomes that to you, until he becomes the treasure that you are willing to get everything else in order that you might have more of him, everything else will lay hold of your life. You will be a slave to it. That freedom comes through seeing Christ and Christ alone as your wealth, as, as your abundance, your inheritance. That when you see that, that changes the core of your heart to now be generous as he was generous. Because you realize that that those things, you don't need them like you thought that you needed them, that what you really needed was Jesus. And so have you done that? Have you, have you by faith trusted that Christ died for your sin, was buried and rose again from the dead, that through him you have new life, that you have eternal life, and that he can give you an inheritance that's far better and far longer lasting than anything that this world can give you? Have you placed your faith in him? I hope so. Because if not, then, then all of this matters very little. And we, we see a story of this in Zacchaeus. Right? It's one of my favorite stories. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man. Was he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he goes up and uh, Jesus is going through and Zacchaeus looks down upon him. And Jesus turns and says, I must dine with you. This evening, he, Jesus invites himself. He's pretty presumptuous. He invites himself into Zacchaeus' home in life. And uh, he doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to invite him. He says, I'm going to dine with you. Open up your home. Get a meal ready. We're coming. And, uh, and so he goes in, and, and Zacchaeus is totally disarmed. He's totally taken aback. And Jesus is, right, his, his hospitality, he's making a stranger into a friend. And that grace going in. It changes Zacchaeus' heart, right? Zacchaeus was an arch tax collector. He was like the king of, of, of tax collectors. Um, and so, but all of a sudden now, Jesus' grace has gone into his life, and now he becomes generous. He says, if I've wronged anybody, man, I'll, I'll pay it back, you know, like quadruple fold. Like, I, I, I will go above and beyond. And why? It's not that he's doing that in order that God would love him, but it's the, it's it's because God's grace has so invaded his life, has so changed him, because Jesus has come and drawn near to him. 
Jesus wasn't an idea to Zacchaeus. He wasn't a concept. He was reality. He was a person that invaded his life, and his grace changed him. And because of that, this, this man was radically transformed. And this is what happens to you and I. Is it, It's when God's grace and his presence descends and invades our life that nothing else seems to matter as much as him. And it changes us. And this is, man, the fight of this is one of faith. And so here, here 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And for us as believers, this is what we have to fight for, is we fight to believe that Jesus is more valuable and more worthy than what this world gives us. And we have to constantly fight for this. Can I tell you, that's, that for me, you know, before when I wasn't married, I, had, I didn't have much money, right? I, mean, I went from a poor, broke college student to working for K-Life, being pretty much poor and broke, except I had a house now. You know, I got to live a place and then came in. And so I, I had like just enough to kind of meet what the needs were, you know? And then you get married and you have a little bit more surplus income, right? I mean, like two incomes are more than one. And so I was like, praise the Lord, more cash flow, right? Um, and so, but, but then it comes into temptation to say, man, what do you do with that? Where are you finding your treasure do you use it to magnify God or to benefit your kingdom? And he says, fight to believe. See that Christ is far more worthy than that your wealth is found in him and to be generous. And so the application as we close, if our, if our heart has found its contentment in Christ and we are fighting daily to see that our wealth is in Jesus, then, then a couple things that this is going to look like in our lives is one, we're going to be able to give. Right, that if our contentment is in Christ, then we are going to be marked by generosity. We can't help it. And and I I want to encourage our church because I really do. Like I mean, being here for about six, almost seven years now, like we are a church that I really do is marked by generosity. Like I when when we walk in here, I believe that it's not just financially that I believe that people give, but I believe that it's of their time and of their relationship. And so, I mean, like as far as there's conviction in this, I also want to provide encouragement because I really do. When I look out at you, like I do, I see people that love and people that are generous, that people that value Jesus and want to make much of Him through their time, their talents, their their resources. And so, you know, I want us to continue to, to strive in that, though. As much as I feel like we do well in that, I want us to continue to, to, to earnestly seek that more because God would use us greatly in that. So we're people marked by generosity. And then the last thing is that I think that we need to be a people that are marked by simplicity. And this, I think, is where there's a challenge, is that are we be able to be content with less? Do we feel that we need to have these things? And, and simplicity means that we are able to say no to certain things. And, and that means simplicity in resources, right? That, that we are able to spend less in order that we might give more. But also, I think, man, simplicity, you know, I'm learning more in my life. Simplicity also is time. 
Do we always add more and more and more and more? Or are we able to be clear on what God has called us to? Because some of the treasures of this world aren't simply monetary, but they might be time, relationships. And God calls us to certain things. And so as a church, we need to be clear on what is it that God has called us to. And this is where fasting is important, right? We, we get clarity about God's will and what he's called us to when we fast and pray. And then we are able to live simply in doing what God has called us. If each one of us do that, then we're not going to be overlapped, right? I mean, we're all going to be doing the things that God has called us to do. And it's a beautiful picture of the body, of what we all can do together, rather than just what we do individually. So I hope that as we as we close and as we go from here, the, the challenge for you might might God might ask you and you might pray through this week is how is it God has called me to live more simply? What is God calling me? Maybe time, maybe relationships, maybe maybe objects. What is God calling me to give up, to to get rid of, to be generous in order that others might live? Right? Dennis says this all the time, I'm called to live simply in order that other people might simply live. Let us pray. Christ, thank you so much that you are far more than what we could ever need or want, Lord. And so just uh, I just pray that, that we would continue to fight, to, to see uh, that you are our contentment, that you are our joy and our satisfaction, that you would reveal the ways in which we are finding uh, our contentment in this world, and that you would help us to confess and to repent. Help us to be people marked by simplicity and by generosity. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do this work in us, for we can't do it on our own. It's your name we pray. Amen.